Hello and welcome to My Daily Trivia. I'm your host, Danny. Today is Monday, August 21st, and I hope you're having a wonderful day. I hope you had a great weekend, and if this is your first time listening, I, of course, want to say welcome. My Daily Trivia is a 10-round quiz show with no specific topics, themes, or categories. We do, however, have a new episode every day, Monday through Friday, with each day getting progressively harder. So today is, of course, Monday, which means today will be pretty easy. It'll be the easiest day of the week. We're starting off the week easy. As always, if you find this episode to be a bit challenging, of course, I encourage you to listen to our other episodes later this week. You never know, you might surprise yourself, you might know the answers to some questions, and if you don't, you might even learn something. If, however, you find this uh, you find this episode to be a bit too simple, well, tune in tomorrow. We're going to make it a little bit more challenging. So without further delay, let's get into today's round of questions with question number one. Which United States National Park is known for its unique sandstone formations, including the famous Delicate Arch? And that national park is Arches National Park. Arches National Park is a national park in eastern Utah, United States. The park is adjacent to the Colorado River, four miles north of Moab, Utah. More than 2,000 natural sandstone arches are located in the park, including the well-known Delicate Arch, as well as a variety of unique geological resources and formations. The park contains the highest density of natural arches in the world. The park consists of roughly 76,000 acres, that's about 310 square kilometers, of high desert located on the Colorado Plateau. The highest elevation in the park is about 5,600 feet, or roughly 1,700 meters high at Elephant Butte, and the lowest elevation is 4,000 feet, that's about 1,000 meters at the Visitor Center. The park receives an average of less than 10 inches, that's 250 millimeters, of rain annually. Administered by the National Park Service, the area was originally named a national monument on the 12th of April, 1929, and was re-designated as a national park on November 12, 1971. The park receives more than 1.8 million visitors as of 2021. From April 1st through October 31st, 2023, a timed entry reservation is required to visit the park between the hours of 7 a.m. and 4 p.m. just to help with the amount of traffic, the amount of visitors. I myself visited that park in about 2018, if I'm not mistaken. found it quite beautiful, camped nearby, and I would recommend it to anyone. Moving on to question number two. What is the fundamental particle that carries a negative electrical charge? that particle is the electron. The electron is a subatomic particle with a negative one elementary electric charge. Electrons belong to the first generation of the lepton particle family and are generally thought to be elementary particles because they have no known components or substructure. The electron's mass is approximately 1 1,836th that of the proton, 
like all elementary particles, electrons exhibit properties of both particles and waves. They can collide with other particles and can be diffracted like light. The wave properties of an electron are easier to observe with experiments than those of other particles like neutrons and protons because electrons have a lower mass and hence a longer de Broglie wavelength for a given energy. The electron was first theorized in the mid-1800s, but was finally proven by physicist J.J. Thompson and his associates in 1897. So once again, the name of that particle with the electric negative charge is the electron. Moving on to question number three. In baseball, how many strikes does a batter get before being called out? And the answer there is three. Now, of course, this is Monday. This is the easiest round of the week. Perhaps this is easy for my American audience. Perhaps globally, it's maybe a bit of more of a challenge. So to explain for people who may, might not know much about baseball, in baseball or softball, a strikeout occurs when a batter accumulates three strikes during a time at bat. It usually means that the batter is out a pitched ball is ruled a ball by the umpire if the batter did not swing at it and, in that umpire's judgment, it does not pass through the strike zone. An umpire, by the way, is like a referee. Any pitch at which the batter swings unsuccessfully or that in the umpire's judgment passes through the strike zone is ruled a strike. Each ball and strike affects the count, which is increment, incremented for each pitched ball with the exception of a foul ball on any count with two strikes. That is, a third strike may only occur by the batter swinging and missing at a pitched ball or the pitched ball being ruled a strike by the umpire with no swing by the batter. A pitched ball that is struck by the batter with the bat on any count and is not a foul ball or foul tip is in play. A batter may also strike out by bunting, even if the ball is hit into foul territory. A strikeout is a statistic recorded for both pitchers and batters, and is denoted by a K in scorekeeping and statistics. A strikeout looking, in which the batter does not swing, and the third strike is called by the umpire, is usually denoted by a backwards K. Are we thoroughly confused? Well, I'll explain a little bit more. The use of the K for a strikeout was invented by Henry Chadwick, a newspaper journalist who is widely credited as the originator of the box score and the baseball scorecard. As is true in much of baseball, both the box score and scorecard remain largely unchanged to this day. Chadwick decided to use a K, the last letter in struck, since the letter S was used for sacrifice, which is another play in baseball. Chadwick is responsible for several other scorekeeping conventions, including the use of numbers to designate player positions. So, once again, all of that is to say that in baseball, there are three strikes before a batter is called out. Moving on to question number four. What is the largest organ in the human body?
And that answer is skin. Skin is the layer of usually soft, flexible outer tissue covering the body of a vertebrate animal with three main functions, protection, regulation, and sensation. In mammals, the skin is an organ of the integumentary system made up of multiple layers of ectodermal tissue and guards the underlying muscle, bones, ligaments, and internal organs. Skin of a different nature exists in amphibians, reptiles, and birds. Skin plays crucial roles in formation, structure, and function of extraskeletal apparatus such as horns. The word skin originally only referred to dressed and tanned animal hides, and the usual word for human skin was hide. The skin is a borrowed from an Old Norse word skin, which is spelled the same with just an extra N, which meant animal hides or fur, which itself came from the Proto-Indo-European root of sek, that's S-E-K, meaning to cut. Uh, I personally always think of Dwight Schrute from The Office, where he mentioned this factoid of skin being the lar largest organ in an episode of The Office. In any case, largest organ in the body is skin. Moving on to question number five. What is the term used to describe the condition characterized by the excessive accumulation of body fat? And the answer there is obesity. Obesity is a medical condition, sometimes considered a disease, in which excess body fat has accumulated to such an extent that it negatively affects health. People are classified as obese when their body mass index, that's BMI, uh, which is a person's weight divided by the square of a person's height, when that ratio is over 30 kilograms to a meter squared. The range of 25 to 30 kilograms per meter square is defined as overweight. Obesity is a major cause of disability and is correlated with various diseases and conditions, particularly cardiovascular diseases, type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep anemia, certain types of cancer, and osteoarthritis. Obesity is a leading preventable cause of death worldwide with increasing rates in adults and children. In 2015, 600 million adults, that's 12%, and 100 million children were obese in 195 countries. Conversely, some cultures, past and present, have a favorable view on obesity, seeing it as a symbol of wealth and fertility. Nevertheless, in 2013, several medical societies, including the American Medical Association and the American Heart Association, classified obesity as a disease. Moving on to question number six. What cooking technique involves preparing multiple meals or dishes in advance and storing them for consumption throughout the week? And that, of course, is called meal preparation or batch cooking. Meal preparation, sometimes called meal prep, is the process of planning and preparing meals. Meal preparation involves preparing meals ahead of time for a short period of time. This practice may occur among people who desire to lose weight, 
gain muscle mass or maintain a healthy lifestyle. Meal preparation is where the food is fully cooked and is often stored in small containers such as Tupperware and are sometimes labeled and dated to remain organized. By preparing meals in advance, there is a limited need for individuals to purchase foods from restaurants or bars, which can have an average markup rate of around 300%. According to the 2020 Consumer Expenditures Report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there was a 32.6% decrease and spending of food away from home from 2019 to 2020, and simultaneously, there was a 6.4% increase in spending food at home. The rise in spending for food at home and decrease for food away from home means that people were preparing more food at home, which led to the average consumer saving approximately $1,151 from eating out less from 2019 to 2020. I personally meal prep every week. I do it not only for cost savings, but also for me, I just don't want to have to think about what I'm going to eat for dinner. So for me, that is one of the biggest reasons, and I'm a huge proponent of it myself. Moving on to question number seven. What popular animated TV show follows the adventures of a yellow family living in the fictional town of Springfield? And that TV show is called The Simpsons. The Simpsons is an American animated sitcom created by Matt Groening for the Fox Broadcasting Company. The series is a satirical depiction of American life, epitomized by the Simpson family, which consists of Homer, Marge, Bart, Lisa, and Maggie. Set in the fictional town of Springfield, it caricatures society, Western culture, television, and the human condition. Since, since its debut on December 17th, 1989, 750 episodes of the show have been broadcast. It is the longest-running running American animated series, the longest-running American sitcom, and the longest-running American scripted primetime television series, both in terms of seasons and number of episodes. A feature-length film, The Simpsons Movie, was released in theaters worldwide on July 27, 2007, and grossed over $527 million, with a sequel in development as of 2018. The series has also spawned numerous comic book series, video games, books, and other related media, as well as a billion-dollar merchandising industry. The Simpsons is a joint production by Gracie Films and 20th television. Now, I personally remember watching the uh, the Simpsons back in the 90s. I would come home from daycare, and I think my parents just assumed it was a cartoon because it was animated. Uh, they maybe didn't know that it was more for adults, so I got to watch it when they were making dinner. I was about five years old. In any case, that's my memory of the Simpsons. Moving on to question number eight. Which iconic residence serves as the official home and workplace of the President of the United States. And that, of course, is the White House. The White House is the official residence and workplace of the President of the United States. It is located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest in Washington, D.C., and has been the residence of every U.S. president since John Adams in 1800, 
when the national capital was moved from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. The term White House is often used as a metonym for the president and his advisors. The residence was designed by Irish-born architect James Hoban in the neoclassical style. Hoban modeled the building on Leinster House in Dublin, a building which today houses the Irish legislator. Construction took place between 1792 and 1800 using Aquia Creek sandstone painted white. When Thomas Jefferson moved into the house in 1801, he and architect Benjamin Henry Latrobe added low colonnades on each wing to conceal what then were stables and storage. In 1814, during the War of 1812, the mansion was set ablaze by British forces in the burning of Washington, destroying the interior and charring much of the exterior. Reconstruction began almost immediately, and President James Monroe moved into the partially reconstructed executive residence in October 1817. Uh, quick fun fact, there is an exact replica of the White House in McLean, Virginia, complete with its own replica of the Oval Office and the Lincoln Bedroom. Uh, my favorite story of the White House, which, truth be told, I've only heard about it. I've never actually co uh, corroborated this story, but apparently Andrew Jackson through such a party for his inauguration that he couldn't get the guests to leave after three or four days. Frankly, he opened the doors and let anyone come in, so he had all these random people there. And after several days of not being able to get the people out of the house, they devised a plan where they told everyone that there was free beer out on the lawn. They just had to go outside and get it. And that way, once everyone was outside, they locked the doors behind them and didn't let anyone back in. That's my favorite story of the White House, uh, I hope it's true. Moving on to question number nine. Which bear species is known for its distinctive white fur and primarily found in the Arctic regions? And of course, the answer there is the polar bear. I told you this was going to be an easy episode. The polar bear is a large bear native to the Arctic and surrounding areas. It is closely related to the brown bear, and the two species can interbreed. The polar bear is the largest extant of, of bear and land carnivore, with adult males weighing roughly 700 to 1,800 pounds. That's about 300 to 800 kilograms. The species is sexually dimorphic, as adult females are much smaller. The polar bear is white or yellowish furred with black skin and a layer of fat. It is more slender than the brown bear with a narrower skull, a longer neck, and lower shoulder hump. Its teeth are sharper and more adapted to cutting meat. The paws are large and allow the bear to walk on ice and paddle in the water. It was historically known as the white bear in Europe between the 13th and 18th centuries, as well as ice bear, sea bear, and Greenland bear. The scientific name Ursus maritimus is Latin for sea bear. The bear is called Nanook by the Inuit, and its current name, polar bear, was given by a Welsh naturalist in 1771. Moving on to our final question of the day. What is the name of the brightest star visible from Earth? And that bright star is called Sirius. 
Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky. Its name is derived from a Greek word meaning glowing or scorching. The star is designated Canis Majoris, Latinized to Alpha Canis Majoris, and abbreviated as CMA or Alpha CMA, with a visual apparent magnitude of negative 1.46, Sirius is almost twice as bright as Canop Canopus, the next brightest star. Sirius appears bright because of its intrinsic luminosity and proximity to the solar system. At a distance of 2.64 parsecs, that's about 8.6 light years, the Sirius system is one of Earth's nearest neighbors. Sirius is gradually moving closer to the solar system, it is expected to increase in brightness slightly over the next 60,000 years to reach a peak magnitude of negative 1.68. Uh, coincidentally, at about the same time, Sirius will take its turn as the southern pole star around the year 66,270. In that year, Sirius will come to within 1.6 degrees of the south celestial pole. This is due to the precession and proper motion of Sirius itself, which moves slowly in the south-southwest direction. So it will be visible from the southern hemisphere only. So at that time, if you're still around 60,000 years from now, make your way to the south pole to catch a glimpse of Sirius. Well, that will conclude this round of My Daily Trivia. If you found this round to be a little too simple for your taste, I encourage you to check in tomorrow on Tuesday. We're going to crank it up just a little bit more. If, however, you found this episode to be a bit of a challenge, hey, I still think you should listen anyway. You never know. You might surprise yourself and know the answer to a question. And even if you don't, you might learn something along the way. As always, we encourage you to tell your friends, tell your family. We're trying to grow our community here at My Daily Trivia. I want to thank each of you again for listening to My Daily Trivia. I'm your host, Danny, and I will see you tomorrow. <laughs>